Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 19th of April, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent. So he's got a cunning plan, Mike. Yes. Well, I think well, we're coming Jeremy on to Hunt, this. Yes, but anyway, uh, we're kicking off with inflation here uh, because uh, the headline figure is 10.1%. Uh, that's higher than was expected, in inverted commas, uh, because, uh, well, who was expecting it to come down faster than it has? So it was 10.4% in February, 10.1% in March. Uh, what's the main driver for that? We'll come on to that in a second. Here's what Jeremy Hunt had to say. We have a plan, and if we're going to reduce that pressure on families, this financial pressure, it's absolutely essential we stick to the plan uh, and we see it through so that we have inflation this year uh, as the Prime Minister has promised. Yeah. Would I trust this man? No. But if you look at his uh, lapel there, of course, is he supporting UK uh, no, or is it yes. for Ukraine? It's, we just don't know, do we? We'll both begin with UK, so, yeah. so there you go. But anyway, uh, let's have a look at the UK compared to other uh, countries. So here is uh, the UK at 10.1%, Italy's on 8.2%, uh, Germany 7.8%, France 6.6%, USA 5.3%. So uh, that's sort of the top five there. Uh, but so what are the key drivers? Well, the main driver is food prices. Uh, and so if we look at this, uh, food and non-alcoholic beverages, 19.2% in March. Uh, that's quite an unbelievable statistic, particularly because wholesale prices have been falling. Uh, so farmers uh, are not getting what they have been getting uh, for crops and so on uh, for, the next, for the next year. But nonetheless, uh, they're not getting uh, as much as they had been. Uh, but we're not seeing that appearing on retail prices just yet. I wonder why. Because it's the same problem with uh, energy. Uh, so energy prices also falling on the wholesale markets, but that is not happening uh, on the retail markets. So this is uh, inflation for household expenses and the sort of uh, cyan color there is electricity, gas and other fuels. And you can see they have come down a little bit, but really it's a bit sort of flat, uh, whereas the wholesale price has come down quite a bit. Uh, and uh, it seems that some people pretty reluctant to uh, let go of the uh, profits advantage that they have had from the headline inflation figures, it seems. Yeah, and, and the uh, blue there giving the big spike for electricity, gas and yes. other fuels. Yes, so where does that take us? Uh, nurses, uh, Debbie, give us an update on what you're seeing in, in health, whether we've got a health system anymore. Well, sadly, we don't, of course. Uh, but yes, good afternoon, everybody. And uh, yeah, of course, I've picked up on the nurses' strikes. The nurses now are announcing that they're going to go on strike again. This is from the 30th of April to the 2nd of May. Now, these are only members of the Royal College of Nursing because actually Unison, uh, members in Unison have voted to accept the offer. So we've got a division here. And I'm really, really disappointed that um, our colleagues at the Royal College of Nurses, that you voted this way because this is unprecedented. It, it will mean that nurses will be walking out of A&E, they'll be walking out of intensive care, and they'll be walking out of critical care and cancer care. So this is absolutely horrific. And as you know, just as that's happening, we've still got patients waiting for A&E. 10% of A&E patients are waiting more than 12 hours and in some areas more. And Cornwall and Shropshire, 
being amongst the worst. So whilst you've got all of these patients waiting for A&E, I would just like to reassure everyone that if you want to grab your, and literally grab a jab, your spring booster, then there are plenty, there's plenty of availability if you want a booster. In fact, apparently 320,000 people have already booked. So you can't get into hospital, you can't have your procedures, you can't have your operations, you can't have your treatment, you can't get into A&E, but there's plenty of availability with spring booster vaccination. So I just wanted to highlight that. And of course, while we're at it and while we're on the NHS and strikes, the junior doctors are carrying on their strikes. And it seems, you know, like me, and I'm critical of the uh, members of the Royal College of Nursing. I'm sorry, but it wouldn't have happened on my watch. And likewise, Dr. Malcolm Chamberlain, who's a retired GP from Guernsey, is suggesting that may, perhaps this is too much that 35%, which is what they're um, demanding, it's going to have to be at a price. And what might that price be? Could it be the pension? So here we have an NHS that's in absolute crisis. Already Keir Starmer has announced that the NHS is broken, but he says he's going to fix it. I have a feeling that he can't fix it. But I don't know if you gentlemen have got any comments on the NHS being broken at the moment. But with nurses and doctors both going on strike, um, how does this leave patients? Obviously, in a very dangerous place. Uh, Debbie, certainly agree with that because pa uh, patients have simply disappeared out of the consciousness of the NHS, it seems to me. But I want to comment on what we're seeing happen in the NHS, because what comes out to me is that people have been turned against each other. Instead of having medical teams that are all working for the benefit of the patient, we've got senior, senior people, consultants turned against the junior doctors in the NHS. We've got nurses against the doctors. We've got GPs somewhere in the mix. So this is classic um, this is a classic plan, in my opinion. How do you just destroy the NHS? You destroy it from the inside and you turn people against each other. So um, it's shocking to watch, but uh, this has all been planned for a very long time. This is not accidental decline. This is an orchestrated breakup of the uh, of the NHS. That's my opinion, at least. Um, Debbie, I know you're going to come on to... Uh private sector involvement in providing cover, uh, NHS care rather, but uh, just want to mention that just literally a couple of minutes before we came on air, uh, somebody somebody sent me through, thanks very much for it, a, a pamphlet or a leaflet from uh, a doctor's surgery um, offering guaranteed appointments, 24-hour care, including house visits, if you pay them £100 a month. Yeah, um, sadly, I'm, I'm hearing... Of, of similar similar um, stories. And I'm also hearing of people that are changing GPs um, and they're actually being asked to sign contracts and they're not quite sure what are in these contracts. So, and, and there is a plenty of private privatization that's seeping in to GP practices. And many GP practices are now called clinical research practices. I need to highlight that because if your GP practice is a clinical research practice, that means your data will be being used for the academic institutions or universities that they've signed up to. So check who your GP is actually working for and where your data is going. And meanwhile, you know, Rishi Sunak is, is quite um, 
quite keen to include the private sector. And, it, you know, he told Conservative Home, he, you can see the headline there, Sunak backs greater role for private sector in providing NHS care. And he is pushing for more uh, private sector to be included within our health service. And you can see there, we don't need to be part of the EU to be a foreign policy superpower. We are a foreign policy superpower, he said. So I just wanted to see who who is being, you know, being brought into our health system, our primary care health system that perhaps we haven't heard of. And I discovered a company called Sera or Sera possibly. I'm not quite sure how they pronounce it, but you can see there that this company, Sera, and I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute, but they're trialing an AI voice assistant to reduce hospital admissions. Now, clearly, this is going to be using AI to track people through their symptoms, asking questions. Um, and the uh, CEO, Dr. Ben Maruthapu, I do apologize for the pronunciation there, said an automated phone call could save a call to emergency services. Critical when staff burnout and waiting lists are at an all-time high by monitoring health deterioration through smart machine learning. So here we go again. We have yet another example of how we're going to bypass A&E, bypass hospitals and use AI. But then Sarah do much more than just AI smartphone um, applications. And I went to look at the digital healthcare hubs that they're rolling out right across the whole of the UK. And so there's, it's kind of like, well, it's called a healthcare startup, but they're going to create 15 digital healthcare hubs across the UK to deliver telehealth and medication services, matching the capacity of 1,000 care homes every day. I mean, let that sink in, the capacity of 1,000 care homes every day. And apparently this is going to uh, support older and vulnerable people. £54 million they've received in funding to provide more than 50,000 in-person healthcare visits every day. I mean, this is a big operation. And it doesn't it doesn't just stop there. Sira are into plenty of other things. I think I've got a couple more slides on Sira where they're rolling out a new platform, this, this new smart care platform that you can see here. Apparently, it's going to save the NHS millions. But my question is, at what cost? So this national rollout apparently comes after this digital input is all put into this one company called Sarah. And when I went to look at them, they call themselves a revolutionizing healthcare transformation company, um, smart digital technology using AI, of course, uh, machine learning. And it's all about delivering care to people at home. So here we go back to the hospital at home um, with Sarah. And then I thought, well, you know, what, what are their services exactly? What are they actually saying? So not only do they have the app, but they also have these services that they list as receive care in your own home, 
repeat medications without the trip to the pharmacy, uh, see a qualified nurse on demand and telehealth consultations at the touch of a button. And it's aimed to reduce hospitalizations by 52%. So you can see that this is exactly the way that hospital at home is starting to evolve. But when I went to look into who Sarah or Sarah have worked with, I was quite shocked to see the array of names. And you can see there Uber, the NHS, the Department of Health and Social Care, Virgin Atlantic, Pill Sorted, and IBM, to name but a few. And when I went to look at the board and who actually control, these are just a couple of characters. There's many, many more. I just highlighted Dr. Men, Dr. Ben Marathapu, again, I do apologize, the chief executive officer, because you can see there that he was co-founder and a board member of the NHS Innovation Accelerator. And with Igal Asiman, who's the chief commercial officer, as well as working for many organizations, I just picked up that he was also an associate director with AstraZeneca and also a business analyst at McKinsey. And it's extraordinary to know exactly how many times the word AstraZeneca taps up whenever I'm, I'm looking and researching into something. They're always appearing in everything. So I just wanted to highlight these companies that are infiltrating our healthcare system, our NHS, taking our NHS logo, but are actually just by stealth they're there, but who knows that they're there? So keep a watch out for Sarah. And if anybody knows anything else, please do let me know. Uh, Debbie, I'll, ju I'll just come in there if I may, because uh, while you were talking, I, I noticed that we've got linkage through a gentleman called Adrian Blair. He's the chief business officer, uh, formerly CEO of Dext, a global um, finance technology company. Uh, but he was also involved with leadership roles at Google and Spotify. So this is straight back into the mix that we've been watching over many years. Whatever direction you go in, you find that you're coming up against these massive global corporations. And um, I, I just find it interesting that these people can start this massive business with no problem at all. The funding comes in, the support from government. How can they do that? Well, they can do it because, of course, the government is helping this whole um, privatisation agenda come into being. Uh, but also huge quantities of so-called venture, so venture, venture capital, capital money yeah. coming in. But the, the, the point I wanted to make here, Debbie, is that, of course, uh, you know, they're saying they want to reduce hospitalizations by 52%. Well, increasingly, we're seeing that, that the only access to healthcare is through this type of technology. And which category of or which demographic is the least likely to be willing to engage or able to engage with this technology? That is the elderly. Uh, and of course, we're going to reduce 52% of uh, hospitalizations by simply locking them out of any kind of way to, to uh, get hospital care. Yeah, and we know, and I've spoken to Roy Lilly uh, about this hospital at home. And of course, you're right, it is the vulnerable and it is the disabled and it is the elderly. Often those groups that have no access to the internet or can't work or operate aren't tech savvy. So they don't have any access to it at all. And actually, Roy Lilly, as he said, the cost to 
teach elderly people, some with dementia, but to teach people how to use this technology and to actually provide every single vulnerable person with an iPad and, and attached to this artificial intelligence and remote nursing is, is an absolute nightmare and it's not possible. And he said, right from the word go, it's not going to be possible. However, we can clearly see it being rolled out for just those vulnerable types of people, including our elderly. How is somebody with dementia going to operate this kind of technology? They're not. And you're right. It locks everybody out. Yeah. Thank you for that, Debbie. Well, I'll just add this meme, which actually I came across while I was looking at things to do with Ukraine. So its origin, I believe, is Eastern Europe. Um, for people listening in, I'll describe it. So the first flag we see is, is the Union Jack, and underneath it, it says, I need stitches. And then a doctor is saying, your appointment is in 43 months. Then we've got the US flag, I need stitches. And the doctor says your bill will be $67,000. And then we have a Canadian flag and I need stitches. And the doctor simply says, have you considered dying? And I find it fascinating to see how other people are now looking into the West and what the West is becoming. And they are clearly seeing through the veneer that uh, the Western populations are given. Okay, let's move on to uh, online safety, Bill, and the attack on uh, encryption and the attack on privacy online from the British government. Now, this is uh, Threema, who provide a chat app, amongst other things, and they have, amongst others, uh, issued an open letter to the British government regarding the online safety bill. So let's just have a look at what they're saying here. Uh, they say, in addition to the EU's so-called chat control uh, law, we mentioned that, I think, on last Friday's uh, UK column news, uh, there's another European draft legislation that uses child protection as a pretext for full-scale surveillance of chat communication without probable cause. Uh, the, online, the UK's online safety bill, together with other messaging apps, we take a firm stand against this legislative proposal. Uh, we fundamentally reject the online safety bill, uh, they go on to say. But anyway, they, uh, uh, before I come on to the open letter itself, this was sort of their preamble to it, I just want to remind everybody uh, what uh, index and censorship uh, said about this because they got a, a barrister's opinion, a, 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 le a legal opinion on this. Uh, and they said, if you remember, that the provisions on the, in the online safety bill that would enable state-backed surveillance of private communications contain some of the broadest and powerful, most powerful surveillance powers ever pr proposed in any Western democracy. The fact they didn't put inverted commas around the word democracy, uh, that, that may have been a typo, but anyway, uh, it means that the UK would be one of the first democracies to place a de facto ban on end-to-end -end encryption for private messaging apps. Uh, so their uh, King's Council legal opinion uh, decided that Section 104 of the uh, Online Safety Bill, as it currently stands, uh, those notices uh, enabled by the bill amount to state-mandated surveillance. Ofcom, he said, will have a wider remit on mass surveillance powers of UK citizens than the UK's spy agencies. Uh, and it's questionable legality as it currently stands. Uh, and there's a failure to protect journalists. And I'll just remind everybody that uh, the uh, SOAS University in London, uh, in their policy briefing from December, made some of the same points. So coming back to uh, the open letter published yesterday, uh, it says, as currently drafted, the bill could break end-to-end -end encryption, opening the door to routine, general and indiscriminate surveillance of personal messages of friends, family members, employees, executives, journalists, 
human rights activists, and even politicians themselves, uh, which would fundamentally undermine everyone's ability to communicate securely. Now, I'll just make the point that the government has, the British government has a uh, reputation on this. Uh, if you remember back to January, early February, this article from the UK column, we covered this on the news programme as well, the unlawful pandemic deployment of 77th Brigade. Uh, Hi Big Brother watches uh, uh, documents highlighting the infrastructure that the UK that uh, the UK column had also highlighted over the last couple of years. Uh, now, I call this a censorship network, but actually, in order to censor people, first of all, you've got to surveil people. And this is, in fact, a surveillance network as well. Uh, now, we need to add, start, if this legislation goes through, we need to add Ofcom into the left-hand column there. Uh, but anyway, so there is form from the British government on this. And so these, these uh, concerns are valid. Anyway, getting back to the open letter, global providers of end-to-end -end encryption, encrypted products and services cannot weaken the security of their products and services to suit individual governments. There cannot be a, quote, uh, British internet or a version of end-to-end -end encryption that is specific to the UK. The UK government, government must urgently rethink the bill revising it to encourage companies to offer more privacy and security to, to its residents, not less. And that's the key point. They go on to say weakening encryption, undermining privacy and introducing the mass surveillance of people's private communications is not the way forward. Uh, and the signatories to this are from uh, Element, uh, from Session, from Signal, from Threema, uh, uh, from Viber, from WhatsApp and from Wire, uh, all providing end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps. I think their concerns are extremely valid. And honestly, if people aren't already campaigning uh, on this issue, they need to be because uh, this bill, as everybody knows, if they've been watching uh, this program, is at committee stage in the House of Lords. It'll head back to the Commons in the not too distant future. And then it'll become law uh, legislation, at least, uh, unless it's stopped. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say... For viewers and listeners, this is a dictatorship. It was installing itself by stealth, but now they're in a bit of a rush and more and more elements of the plan are, are coming up to the surface. But it's a dictatorship. There's no question about it. And we've used the term a government of occupation. This seems to fit very well to what we see here in UK. And of course, this uh, same system is installing itself in other Western countries. Okay, if you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, membership would be very welcome, very much needed. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms, including ukcolumn.org itself and uh, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, thanks for that, Mike. Well, let's have a look at some emails that have come through uh, to the UK column. This one uh, in reference to a conference in Stavanger in Norway. Um, a lady says, uh, Mina says, this is just information about a conference that was held in Norway on the 15th of April a few days ago. I couldn't attend, but I've watched live stream. Um, so it says... Uh, you know the things that are happening more and more in many other countries. And gladly, Norway is also slowly getting engaged. So we're saying Norway's waking up as well. The conference was fantastic and very interesting. Uh, it states it's nine hours long, but a lot of it is coffee breaks, lunch breaks, etc. Andrew Bridgen was also a guest speaker and his part starts six hours, 15 minutes and 34 seconds. So this was a thank you for what we're doing from a follower in Norway, but they were also saying that uh, 
people are now starting to pay attention in Norway itself. I'll just mention that some of the doctors for COVID ethics uh, people were there and uh, well, the, the feedback on Andrew Bridgen was uh, extremely positive. Excellent. Okay. And uh, we've also got this one, which is feedback directly on the Andrew Bridgen interview. So uh, David says, hi, Josie, thank you for your reply. The fantastic interview with Andrew Bridgen yesterday. And quite frankly, the fact he's in the position he is, is extremely disturbing. The fact he looked to UK column to provide the truth in these matters is testament to the growing awareness of the service UKC provides, particularly uh, a blazing light in these otherwise very dark times. So thank you very much for that, David. Uh, I've got another one here. Dear Josie, just to say a big thank you to Brian for his interview with Andrew Bridgen today. It was really helpful. And yes, please come back again. Quite despicable what's been going on and the blatant denial of our MPs across the House. Well done, Andrew. He should be given a medal for standing up for the truth. And that's kind regards, Claire. And this one, a bit more detail, um, I'm putting it up just to really show that it's here. We'll try and do a little bit more on this. But uh, Simon sent in the fact that he'd actually challenged the BBC about how Andrew Bridgen was being treated. And of course, what came back from the BBC uh, was their dismissal of any concerns. So they're defending Antisocial, a weekly Radio 4 programme that looks at an issue. And uh, it says in the in the edition broadcast on the 21st, 24th of March, we looked at online censorship um, as the presenter, Adam Fleming, reflected uh, some opinions being sent are some opinions being censored online while others aren't. Um, but the whole point of this was that um, Andrew Bridgen also took a hit in this programme. But we'll look into this in a little bit more detail for you. I noticed that uh, Simon mentions that uh, Full Fact has been attacking Andrew Bridgen quite a lot. Uh, we'll have more on that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, so uh, the interview did go out uh, at 1pm yesterday. Uh, that, are, uh, that video is archived on the uh, front page of the UK Column website at the moment. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, please go and have a look. Uh, and then tomorrow at 1pm, David Scott will be speaking to Angela Lewis-Wright, who's the interim uh, leader of the Freedom Alliance. Um, so that should be an interesting discussion as well. Excellent. Okay, well, another reminder of the uh, online live stream for AV, AV on um, smart cities and surveillance agenda. Uh, so that's uh, 23rd. And um, I will be hosting on behalf of the AV team. We've got Pippa King, John Kitts and Mark Anderson, David Dubon speaking. And I believe we're able to offer a yeah, so, so the AV team have uh, set things up so that UK Column members will get a small discount on that event. So if you have a look on the UK Column forums at the moment, pinned to the top of the list uh, are details of how to uh, access that. And uh, we would just say, encourage everybody to support this uh, because uh, you know the, the real live event that's happening in October, AV13, uh, this will give a little bit of foundation to that. Yes, okay. And uh, let's um, look at... Sorry, right, so we've got, got this. this. Uh, this is the WHO Pandemic Treaty, Our Fundamental Freedoms at Risk. This is being live streamed tonight, uh, the, uh, Wednesday the 19th from 5.30pm to 7.30pm. I believe that's uh, European... No, that's European time. Uh, and it's being live streamed uh, from the European Parliament website. We will have the link to that in the show notes below uh, the video this afternoon. Uh, but if you search for the... Uh, 
Lupin Dabic Treaty are fundamental freedoms at risk. Uh, the speakers are Dr. Sylvia Brent, uh, David Bell, Philip Cruz and Wolfgang Bodarg. Okay, where does that take us? It takes us to Debbie. You've got a video clip here, Debbie, which you wanted us to uh, play out. Do you want to comment yeah, beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? I'm going to probably allow you to watch it and then perhaps comment. This video only was released a few days ago by Moderna. And it just so happens that I've been doing quite a lot of work into Moderna. So I have quite a lot to say. But I found this very short video really quite, quite shocking. So I'd appreciate your observations and your comments perhaps after you've had a look at it. This is a piece of string, a strand. Doesn't seem like much, unless it's a strand of mRNA, the code of life inside every cell of your body then it has the power to change everything. mRNA has already changed how we fight viruses. It has created medicines at unprecedented speed. mRNA could change how we stand up to multiple diseases. From the widespread to the extremely rare. It could even individualize how we approach cancer. One strand of mRNA could change life for the better. Everywhere. That's getting us there. Moderna, this changes everything. So um, I've got quite a lot to say about it, um, but I'd welcome your comments first because I'm simply breathless. mRNA technology is here to stay. And the title of the uh, video was mRNA age. So the age of mRNA. Do you have any initial comments, gentlemen? Well, my initial comment would be the comment in the video that mRNA will change life for the better. Uh, and uh, of course, many people will view that statement to mean life for everybody will get better as a result. Uh, but maybe they want to change life in other ways. I'm just going to throw that out as a, as a, a throwaway comment. Yeah, my, my reaction is one, it's it's actually a horror film. If you think it through, that individuals, unknown individuals, think they are going to change the whole of life. They have the scientific knowledge, they have the morality, they have love in their hearts, they're going to change the whole world. And it's presented in a cartoon way. So this is, you are the children, we are going to look after you, just follow what we're presenting and you will be all right. It's it's incredibly dark and sinister. This stuff. It, it it is, and and there's a lot of symbology, and I'm sure a lot of people when they go and look at that video, or maybe they're probably screaming at the screens now because they've seen a lot of symbology in it. But what I would what I wanted to make an observation was was that if you look at that video again, you'll only see maybe two at most, but one slightly older person. 
in that video, it was all children, all young people, and there was a pregnant mum as well in that video. Now, Moderna are defining themselves as an mRNA software program. And despite what Wikipedia will tell you about Moderna, saying that they're a biotech pharma company, Stefan Bansal, who, by the way, only has an MSc in chemical engineering, doesn't have a doctorate in anything, but runs Moderna, classifies Moderna as an mRNA company. Now, I have spoken to many experts about mRNA, and in their opinions, it's extremely dangerous. It's really... Um, it's nanolipids. It's not so much the, it is the mRNA technology. The mRNA technology is the new platform. So where it's even more dangerous is that the MHRA and other regulators have basically said, oh, if one mRNA platform is okay, like the COVID vaccine, then all of them are okay. We don't need to do any more studies. We don't need to look at the safety of it. It's all fantastic. In my opinion, and in the opinion of many experts, mRNA technology should be stopped immediately. I've done a lot of work on this and on Moderna, and I'll be bringing a lot more to you very, very soon. I promise about this. I, I promise you. But I would just like to finish on the point that if I, I think a lot of people do know this, but I think it's just worth reiterating that if someone's had a Pfizer mRNA injection, they have had 30 micrograms of mRNA. If they've had a Moderna COVID-19 injection, they have had 100 micrograms of mRNA. So that's three Pfizer's and a little bit more in one Moderna. So I've been looking very closely at dose and again, I'll bring you more on that later. But that, that little Moderna video, I, I believe, is very significant. And please, everybody in the UK, remember that Moderna are building, as we speak, a massive, great manufacturing uh, facility in Oxfordshire in order that the UK will become a living laboratory for mRNA. And again, there'll be more on that in the very near future. Okay, thanks, Debbie. And uh, just to finish off the ad section, um, here is uh, Not Our War, keep us out. Uh, Saturday the 22nd, this coming Saturday, 12 p.m. Trafalgar Square. Encourage everybody to go to that. Now, unfortunately, uh, for various reasons, uh, Patrick is no longer able to attend that. So Patrick Henderson will not be speaking at that event, but everybody should go to that anyway. Uh, and then uh, finally, just a reminder, referendum on ending the government's economically costly Ukraine-Russia policies. Uh, this has only had four and a half thousand signatures so far. Everybody should be signing. I know we don't like uh, petitions necessarily, but everybody should be signing this because at the very least it uh, makes views known. Yeah. Um, right. Where does that take us? Oh, yes. A quick correction. I do apologize to everybody. I sh my video of uh, from the Sudan uh, uh, segment on uh, Monday's program uh, included some footage which was not genuine. Um, so uh, I just wanted to make the point, though, that uh, the Sudanese paramilitary group, uh, the uh, rapid support forces, had claimed to be shooting down helicopters. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the video was incorrect, so I do apologize for that. Uh, but I'll just uh, make this point. Uh, yesterday, <clears throat> uh, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, was at the G7 foreign ministers meeting 
uh, with Anthony Blinken. Um, and uh, of course, they're condemning what's going on in Sudan at the moment, despite the fact that, well, many questions need to be asked about how much conflict, stability and security fund money has, got, has contributed to the situation there at the moment. Uh, but Blinken uh, pushed this out on Twitter uh, yesterday, saying in today's G7 sessions, we discussed the risk of unsustainable debt in Africa, Wagner's nefarious influence in Africa and the importance of supporting partners in reaching sustained peace. Uh, we agreed that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, is how he ended the tweet. But uh, on Monday's program, I was making the, or I was certainly asking the question, did this situation in Sudan kick off because the Sudanese government had decided to permit uh, the Russian uh, naval fleet to be based in uh, Sudan port? Um, and uh, certainly Blinken gives us a hint there uh, because um, you know, they are clearly extremely concerned about Wagner Group. Uh, and their activities in that part of the world. Yeah, and uh, of course, it, um, we reported many years ago on the fact that uh, Africa was going to increasingly become an interest for the European Union and its power base. And of course, the Americans are going to be in there because they wouldn't want anybody else to be in there first. Well, let's have a look at uh, what's happening in Ukraine. And I have a section of video here. I do not know who has produced this video. If anybody um, watching recognizes it and can let me know, then we will give full credit to the individual that's produced it. However, it does provide a very easy, un uh, easy to understand time uh, clip of how the Russians approach their battle for Bakhmut. And uh, let's play it. And uh, it's got a, a narration to it, so you can listen in at the same time. Um, but for anybody who thinks that uh, the fighting out in uh, Ukraine has sort of stagnated and those Russians don't know what they're doing, just have a look at this little clip. With Bakhmut consisting of many buildings, the only way to take it was to encircle it and cut the supply lines to the city. But this was easier said than done because the city itself was surrounded by considerable urban terrain. The way west of the city was blocked off by the town of Chasif Yar and the village of Ivanivska. To the northeast of Bakhmut, the urban area extended through Krasnahora and Soledar towards Bakhmutska and Yakovlevka. So in order to encircle Bakhmut, the Russians would have to overcome good defensive terrain. The Russian offensive began in mid-December. We will first look at the attack from the south. During the first four weeks of the offensive from mid-December to mid-January, the Russian progress here was slow. During late January and early February, they advanced up to Ivanivska, then their attack was completely stopped by the Ukrainian forces. The progress of this attack was underwhelming, but it still had distracted the Ukrainian forces long enough that the Russians had been able to make large progress with their northern attack. This is how it went. During the third week of December, the Russians took the Ukrainian strongpoint of Yakolivka. During the last part of the month, they expanded their positions and also assaulted Bakhmutska, which fell to them during the first week of January. Then the Russians approached the town of Soledar from two sides. During the second week of January, they captured the eastern part of the town, and during the third week, they took the rest of it. By that time, they had reached the Bakhmutka river. Now, their last obstacle was the urban area of Krasnahora. In the last part of January, the Russians crossed the Bakhmutka river near Soledar and occupied the heights overlooking Krasnahora. 
During the first week of February, they moved out to outflank the Krasnohora position and by the third week of the month had captured it. This made the Ukrainians retreat from the eastern part of Bakhmut to shorten their defensive line. Then the Russians seemed to advance west in an attempt to cut off the Ukrainian supply lines into Bakhmut. During the rest of February, they made these gains. During the first week of March, they advanced some more. But it seems like then their focus was changed to attacking Bakhmut directly. During the second week of March, they gained this territory. And this is what the front line looks like at the end of the fourth week of March, around the time of this video being finished. So a very clear little uh, video there, which really gives you some idea of the scale of the fighting on both sides, but also the Russians' approach to what they're doing. So the West's uh, comments that Russia is incompetent on the battlefield, they're fighting with spades, they don't know what they're doing. Clearly, this, this was very well thought out approach on the battlefield. But where does it take us? It takes us to the fact that the Russians at the moment are still very happy that the Ukrainians are throwing more and more resources into the uh, remnants of the occupied territory inside Bakhmut. And if we can bring this slide up on screen, um, where we can see here a mass of, of, of Ukrainian um, military flags or markers showing the units in the last part of the city. Um, reports now are pretty unified on saying that the Ukrainians have brought about 100,000 troops into the Bakhmut conflict. That doesn't mean to say they've all been brought into the city. They've been brought into the city and surrounding areas to form a second line of defence, um, but with no air cover, no um, missile systems uh, anti-air missile systems left of their own. Uh, the Ukrainian troops are now vulnerable to Russian air attack and the Russians are using some very large scale airdrop bombs, uh, which means that the slaughter is now increasing. Um, if we just bring in this inset map here, um, this actually shows the remaining portion for Ukraine. That's in the yellowy-green colour on the left. And essentially, Ukraine holds about 10% of the city with a remaining 8%, which is still no man's land in the West. Uh, but the fighting still goes on at a time when all nations, we believe, should be calling for a ceasefire to stop the slaughter and the carnage. And if we go to the other fortified town, this is uh, Avdivka. Um, this is uh, the second most important stronghold after uh, Bakhmut, and it's the area from which the Ukrainians have consistently shelled Donetsk and civilian targets. Uh, well, this is also surrounded uh, by the uh, Russians, if we just bring in some markers to show what's actually going on here. Uh, but of course, the other thing, as this horrible battle continues, so does the Ukrainian shelling of largely civilian areas inside the Russian-controlled territory. And over the weekend, which was the Orthodox Easter weekend, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Ukraine was, uh, was shelling, uh, rocketing, uh, churches as well as other civilian infrastructure. So truly horrible. And the casualties that uh, it would appear that the Ukrainians are now prepared to admit to the Americans are 257,000 
And that would mean, if it's correct, many think it's still an underestimate, that there's going to be at least five, that, five times that number of wounded men. So men with severe injuries for life or minor, minor wounds, uh, we're getting close to a million. So this is the devastation of Ukraine. And of course, it can only have happened with the full connivance and support of the West and the arms that uh, the US, UK, NATO and the European Union are pouring in. Meanwhile, let's have a look at uh, how the BBC is approaching life. And I've said this many times, so I laugh at myself each time I think the BBC has done it, they come up with something better. So here's the headline, Ukraine war, uh, the Russian ship, the Russian ships accused of North Sea sabotage. But the headline is this is Ukraine war. So what's really going on here? This is an attack on the public mind. This is BBC disinformation. I'm calling it fear porn because it's all about fear. And this is a remarkable piece of reporting. Um, just before we move on, Brian, I just want to take that off screen again for a second. Uh, is that supposed to be an oil platform? What is that sitting in the middle of all those uh, um, turbines? Uh, possibly. The scale's a bit de deceptive with the picture, but possibly it's an oil platform or possibly it's a control platform for the turbines themselves. Right. I wasn't able to... Uh, I did, I did notice that strange little object, but I wasn't able to get yeah. to, to the bottom of it. So we'll do a bit more work on that. But here's the story. Headlined, Ukraine war, the Russian ships accused of North Sea sabotage. And let's bring in one of the uh, ships. Uh, the photo the BBC used is what, early morning or dusk? It's a little bit sinister. The pirate ship's got the lights on. And here it is. The report focuses on a Russian vessel called the Admiral Vladimirsky. And uh, what has this uh, vessel been doing? Well, apparently it's been sneaking around the North Sea, having a look at all the windmills. And this has got the BBC very, very excited. They've teamed up with other news teams. Now, just to clarify, we're talking about offshore wind turbines here. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed, yeah. Um, so the BBC's teamed up with um, media outlets in other countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Also, Holland is uh, quoted in the article. Apparently, somebody in a rubber boat, a reporter, approached the ship, and the BBC is shocked that when they did this, uh, the boat was confronted by an armed individual on board the Russian ship. So I would say to that, I'm absolutely not surprised because the same thing's likely to happen with a, uh, a British or American unit. And uh, let's put in the title from the, uh, the whole saga here. This is the BBC. This is now Putin's shadow war. So it's all very sinister stuff. This is the journalist, Gordon Carrera. And let's have a look at what he said in the article, a Danish counterintelligence officer says the sabotage plans are being prepared in case of a full conflict with the West. Well, the head of Norwegian intelligence told the broadcasters, that's the group, uh, the program was considered highly important for Russia and was controlled directly from Moscow. Do you right. get the passion in there? Yes, but told the broadcasters that's the group. So this is the rapid response mechanism mm -hmm. at work. We decide what our narrative is. It becomes a common narrative across all broadcasters in the G7. Uh, and away we go. Away we go. 
Thank you for that, Mike. So let's pop in this because I can say with confidence here that both NATO, the US, NATO, UK and Russia have had sabotage plans in place during the Cold War. And since those days, Gordon Carrera, there is nothing new here. So this is just regurgitating uh, something for a uh, to spin a line. Uh, the broadcasters say they've analysed intercepted Russian communications, which indicate so-called ghost ships sailing in Nordic waters, which have turned off the transmitters so as not to reveal their locations. This is this could have been written from the mind of a 14-year-old who wanted to do a little bit of a spooky spy story, um, but it's 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 nonsense. Uh, are we really saying that broadcasters have analysed Russian communications with the military and intel services not capable of this? Or I'm going to suggest it's more likely the BBC monitoring, which is an arm of British intelligence, would have been at work here. So this is a beautifully spun story. Let's carry on through. The report focuses on the Russian vessel called Admiral Vladimirsky. Officially, this is an expeditionary oceanographic ship or underwater research vessel, but the report alleges that it is in fact a Russian spy ship. Uh, again, there's nothing new here. This is Cold War routine, which has continued since the Cold War. Any vessel getting near the coast of Russia uh, would be used by the Americans and the British to spy. That's the nature of the game. Uh, here we are. The documentary uses an anonymous former UK Royal Navy expert to track the movements of the vessel in the vicinity of seven wind farms off the coast of the UK and the Netherlands on one mission. And uh, if we put a bit of comment in this, I'm fascinated as to why the UK Royal Navy expert would need to be anonymous. I would say stand up and be counted. But of course, by saying it's anonymous, the BBC can up the spookery and the sinister nature of what's happening. So uh, he said, we saw in recent months, Russian actors tried to uncover how the energy system works in the North Sea. Uh, it's the first time we've seen this. So Gordon Carrera putting there the quote from uh, General Jan Swillens, the head of Dutch military intelligence. And uh, I find it incredible that the BBC thinks the Russians have watched this whole infrastructure built, but they've only taken until now to come and work out what's in place and how it works. This is this is nonsense by the BBC. And uh, it's uh, he then says this. Reconnaissance of sensitive sites is not unusual and Western countries will likely be carrying out similar activity against Russia. The intention is likely to have a series of options available should a conflict escalate. Apologies, got a little bit of uh, editing text in there. Um, but um, now he has admitted that this is normal. So he puts a headline of Ukraine. He's, he's getting people to think of the war in Ukraine. He's talking about Russian sabotage. He calls it Putin's shadow war. And then two thirds of the way through the article, he tells you it's all normal. Mm. This, is, this is outrageous. And there can only be one agenda here, which is to increase fear, alarm and distress in the public mind. But you get another clue as to what this man's really about, because if you go to his uh, Twitter page, his header is Russians Among Us, uh, Sleeper Cells, Ghost Stories and the Hunt for Putin Spies. And he's selling his book. 
So is this factual reporting by the BBC or is this hype to sell a book? I, I just think this is uh, this is utterly disgraceful by the BBC and they should be held to full account by the whole population of UK. Disgraceful stuff. Um, did he mention that uh, our early warning radar on the East Coast doesn't work because of all these uh, wind farms? No, no, he didn't, actually. He didn't. Okay. Uh, well, look, apologies. Uh, we had one more uh, little ad that we didn't put in the ad section. So let's bring it on screen now uh, because apologies to David for this. But uh, uh, Scottish vaccine injury group Unite Rally taking place on Saturday uh, at 1 p.m. Buchanan Gallery steps uh, with a number of guest speakers, including uh, Dr. Kat Lindley, uh, Mark Sharman, Dr. Uh, Asim Malhotra and so on. So uh, do get along to that if you're in Glasgow. Uh, so uh, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, well, not going so well for certain French journalists. Um, so let's put this on screen. Uh, this is uh, Ernest uh, Moray, who works for what's described in the mainstream press as a radical left wing uh, publication called Edition La Fabrique. Uh, and he was detained by British police arriving at St. Pancras Station from Paris on Monday evening. Uh, he was coming to the UK to take part in the London Book Fair. Um, so uh, he was alleged to be in possession of, or at least the police wanted to know if he was in possession of terrorist material or he had engaged in any terrorist activity. Uh, he was st stopped under Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000 by counterterrorism officers uh, who demanded he disclose the passcodes to his phones and to his computer, and he was refused to do that. So he was eventually arrested uh, uh, on Tuesday. Now, what is Section 7, Schedule 7? Sorry, let's have a look. So this was, uh, I've just chosen this review of the operation of Schedule 7 uh, that the Home Office published in 2012 because it describes it. Uh, so let's bring it on screen. It says Section 7 of the Terrorism Act is a national security port and border power. It enables an examining officer to stop, search, question, and detain a person traveling through a port, airport, or the border area. This is to determine whether that person is or has been involved in the commission, preparation, or instigation of acts of terrorism. Stopping an individual does not necessarily mean that the officer blame, uh, believes the person is a terrorist. An examining officer may require a person to answer question, questions or provide certain documents. If a person refuses to cooperate with the examination, they can be detained by the examining officer for a maximum of nine hours. Uh, most examinations, over 97%, last under an hour. Fewer than three people in every 10,000 are examined as they pass through UK borders. An examining officer may also search a person or anything they have with them. A failure to comply with requests made by the examining officer may be considered an offence under the Act. So anyway, he was held for six hours uh, eventually um, and then was released on bail. Now, this, of course, is very similar to what happened to Vanessa Bailey the last time she came to the UK. Uh, she was also held for six hours, uh, and they also attempted to uh, get access to phones and so on. Uh, but uh, in this case, he refused to give the uh, any information. And, of course, you have no right to remain silent under those circumstances in this country. Uh, here's a statement from the uh, uh, publication itself on the arrest of Ernest Murray. Uh, the police officer claimed that Ernest had participated in demonstrations in France as a justification for this act. So in other words, he was stopped by the anti-terrorism police because he took part in the anti-Macron uh, uh, the Macron, pension. Uh, the pension, thank you, the pension demonstrations in France. And they go on to say this is quite uh, a quite remarkably inappropriate statement for a British officer, a police officer to make. 
uh, and which seems to clearly indicate complicity between French and British authorities in the matter. Uh, and that is certainly the question that many people are asking today. Why was he arrested on the British side? Why wasn't he arrested in France uh, if there was a concern that this person was uh, uh, some kind of terrorist or involved in terrorism in any, in any way? Um, and uh, I think that's a very good question that does need to be answered. Yeah, but of course the collusion between the uh, uh, the police and the security services, both sides of the border, is absolute. Unless, of course, you're going to come in as an uh, as an illegal immigrant, in which case they seem unable to secure the borders. So we, we've got another angle to examine this one on, Mike. Uh, let's come back to Andrew Bridgen. And uh, well, Full Fact uh, was attacking him uh, this morning. Andrew Bridgen MP shared a document supposedly showing a list of communist rules for revolution written in 1919. Uh, this list has been circulating for more than half a century, but has widely been labelled a hoax. Um, okay, so let's have a look at the Bridgen tweet. Here it is. Uh, these rules were written in 1919, he said, over 100 years later, people have intrinsically not changed that much. We should all read and study this. It must be resisted at all costs. Now, Bridgen hasn't said that uh, this is factual or he hasn't said exactly where, where it came from. He's just said that it was published, which it was. Now, full fact, of course, is correct to say that this is uh, fake in the sense that, that it's not related to communism as such. But, but I think it's worthwhile just looking at the text of this and considering what was the point that Andrew Bridgen was actually trying to make here. So uh, let's bring this back on screen and we'll zoom in on this. Uh, so communist rules for revolution. It says in, in May 1919 at Dusseldorf, Germany, Allied forces captured a very significant document, communist rules for revolution. As you read these rules now 50 years later, keep in mind what you're reading and hearing every day via news media. And so number A says, uh, corrupt the young, get them away from religion, get them interested in sex, make them superficial, destroy their ruggedness. Uh, B, get control of all means of publicity, thereby one, get people's minds off their government by focusing their attention on athletics, sexy books, and plays and other trivialities. Divide the people into hostile groups by constantly harping on controversial matters of no importance. Destroy the people's faith in their natural leaders by holding the latter up for contempt, ridicule, and so on. Uh, always preach true democracy, but seize power as fast and ruthlessly as possible. By encouraging governmental extravagance, destroy the credit, produce fear of inflation with rising prices and general discontent, uh, promote unnecessary strikes in vital industries, encourage civil disorders, and foster a lenient and soft attitude uh, on the part of government towards such disorders. And finally, number seven, by specious argument, cause the breakdown of all moral values, honesty, and sobriety. sobriety sorry. And number C, then, uh, cause the registration of all firearms in some pretext with a view to confiscating them and leaving the population hapless. So I'm going to say I don't think it matters, the genuineness of this document. I think what matters is the content yeah. of this document. And so full fact by attacking uh, Andrew Bridgen in this way is trying to distract from the content of this document. And I think his point is absolutely valid. People should be reading this document, considering what it says, comparing it to what's going on in the world today and really having a serious and discussion about it. asking how that's come about. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, are we back to Debbie? New. We, yes, by Sorry. all means. Um, 
all eyes on the WHO. And, you know, referring back to Andrew Bridgen, I would just like to say that if anybody doesn't know, Andrew Bridgen was speaking, and I believe it was a select committee yesterday, on pandemic preparedness and the WHO. And um, if anybody wants to go and watch that, it's on his YouTube um, and it's also on his Twitter. But it was very, very powerful. And um, I was very impressed. Um, But that said, we're all looking at the WHO and the Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. And of course, Mark Anderson and James Roguski have been doing a lot of reporting. I interviewed James Roguski with regards to that. And we've also featured the UK petition. But whilst we're looking at the WHO, Let's just cast our eyes back to the United Nations. It doesn't take long before you suddenly see that um, the New American only a few days ago published this article, which says that the United Nations seeks to strengthen global governance during emergencies, which always sounds rather suspicious. When you read on, it says the United Nations released a policy brief last month proposing an emergency platform or set of protocols that would automatically activated in response to global shocks, such as a future pandemic, an economic crisis, or even an outer space event that creates severe worldwide disruptions. Now, this this whole announcement was made from, uh, and I might be throw it back to Brian in a minute for this, because the policy document that it came from is called uh, Our Common Agenda. And this is a, a document that's entitled Strengthening the International Response to Complex Global Shocks, an Emergency Platform. So this common agenda was only published in March 2023, and it's basically discussing how to deal with global shocks. So what actually constitutes a global shock? I I had a little bit more of a look into this document and I've just snatched a couple of slides to show you that the diagram on the left is the complex global shocks. So those include major climatic events, future pandemic risks, events involving biological agents, disruption to global flows of goods or people, cyberspace digital connectivity disruption, major event in out of space, an unforeseen black swan event. So those are the complex global shocks that perhaps we're all to prepare for. And then on the right, you can see the principles of the emergency platform and what the emergency platform actually does. So you can see there that it's meant to strengthen coordination, flexible, be flexible and agile, inclusive and multi-stakeholder. Um, and this is this document is very in-depth. And when I found, um, there's another diagram that I'll highlight too, which talks about the impact. So what is the impact of, of global shocks on, of course, the, uh, the sustainable um, development goals? It all comes back to those. And here we've got, and I'm sorry they're not quite pasted in order, but you've got 17 points there of shocks and and some of them just to highlight you can freeze the screen and maybe look at them in more depths but some of them are zero hunger quality education 
gender equality, reduced inequalities, climate action, life on land, peace, justice, strong institutions. So these are all the things that are being highlighted in this document. And I just wanted people to know that the United Nations quite clearly are preparing for every eventuality, including pandemics. So whilst many people have their eyes quite rightly on the WHO, perhaps we might like to just keep our eyes firmly on the UN as well. Which brings me back nicely <laughs> to home. Are we going back to uh, the, the new accessory, perhaps you might want to call it? Uh, I always thought as a nurse, I always thought an airing was a device that people with piles sometimes sat on. But no, apparently not. The new airing is the latest must-have. Now, shockingly, I showed this to a few young people and they were wowed by it. They thought it was amazing. It looked pretty, it's, it's called Elegant, and it's meant to deliver um, purified air to the wearer. I mean, honestly, I've got a couple of screenshots of it, but I think perhaps it might be best just to go straight to a little video clip that I've got, which will tell you all you need to know about the airing and what's coming up, what we can buy now. Oh, it works for eight hours, by the way. Have a little look. A-ring, a wearable air purifier designed to generate a pure and refreshing atmosphere around the user's face. Graceful lines of the air ring naturally extend the human body with unseen usability, comfort, and style. Within the elegant air ring are advanced and powerful modules, a sufficient battery array, and silent air turbine. The generated airstream is filtered by HEPA, sterilized by UV radiation, and cleaned by carbon filters. The precisely delivered purified airflow forms a sterile perimeter around the user's face. The air ring is self-guiding and easy to operate. One touch and a snap is enough to disconnect the magnetic mask and firmly connect it with the main compartment in a single motion. The air ring folds and slides off. Simply slide on an unfolded air ring and you're ready for action. The snap magnetic mask is for extra protection. Air ring is ready to go. Different masks and screens are available. The full face screen mask maximizes your personal protection. Extremely adaptive, reliable, and user-friendly. Air ring fits with any outfit for any situation. Ready for action, open for communication, free to smile. Suitable for fitness, always with you so you can enjoy breathing. Uncover adventure. Air Ring, designed with joy. Debbie, I, I just, that, that, must be, that must be a joke. Tell me it's a joke. It's not. It's not. There is a website. There is a full website with all of the um, the specifications on it. Um, unless it's just a really, really good hoax, and the whole website's a good hoax. But I mean, I'll open it up for debate. Perhaps someone can find out. Maybe I've been scammed. Well, the device troubles me because anybody who plays, say, the violin or violas, <laughs> can have a real trouble 
with their div design. So I think it's got some limitations. Oh, forget the anyway. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah. all right. <laughs> we'll add a few more. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, move on well, to Nevada then. Oh, yes. Look, um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to give you the latest what we've got to be scared of next. So it's a fungus this time. Um, Nevada chiefs have warned that uh, a fungal infection, C. aureus, that's Candida aureus, may be spreading in the community. And uh, not surprisingly, they're putting it down to climate change. Now, some people will look and say, oh, here we go again. It's another fungus. This fungus apparently is a super fungus because it's going to be kind of resistant to all of the normal antifungals that we use um, and medications that we use. Some people might have seen um, a, a television series. I think it's I can't remember the name of it, but it was featuring The Last of Us, I think it's called. And it was featuring a fungus, uh, a kind of zombie mind altering fungus. So this is the latest um, stories that are coming out from Nevada. But there are also these fungal stories are coming out from other countries as well. So just one to keep an eye on. Meanwhile, we'll go back to Arturis, which is the new COVID variant, of course, that Patrick was talking about on Friday. And uh, the new symptom is sticky eye, um, which <laughs> sticky eye is, well, I don't know really what to say, except for the fact that we are in hay fever season and pink eye conjunctivitis is often associated with hay fever. However, Apparently, this new COVID variant that we've all got to be really, really frightened of, um, this is attacking children. What a surprise, not. Um, and it looks like if anybody's got sticky eyes or itchy eyes, they might well be tested for Arcturus. So that's just the warning. Also going on um, in the world of testing is that, of course, we go back to mobile apps. And now you've got a mobile app that's been designed which will let you scan your COVID and flu test, a bit like a, a pregnancy test. Um, so that's something to look forward to because nobody should be testing, of course. But better than that, we've got another new test, which can actually tell within 10 seconds, have you got COVID or flu? I mean, this is absolutely insane. But when you look at it in more depth, you can see that it gets a little bit more sinister because this is a sensor and I've shown a picture of this little sensor. There it is. And it's made of a single atom thick nanomaterial. Every time I hear the word nano or anything associated with nanomaterial or nanotechnology, I flinch. So this is made of graphene using a single layer of carbon atoms arranged in a hexagonal lattice pattern. Its thinness makes it highly sensitive to any electrical changes in the environment, giving it the ability to differentiate between COVID and flu. Be very grateful for some comments on that, if anybody's got any comments on that. But finally, at the, at the end of this one segment for mine, I just wanted to highlight that Paxilovid have now are moving closer, at least, to a full FDA approval. And we've talked many times about Paxilovid um, from Pfizer and the dangers and June rain was talking about the serious adverse reactions and um, they're very serious. So the fact that this 
drug is moving closer to a full FDA approval is terrifying. But on the flip side, I would like to just thank Cheryl Granger very quickly for letting me know today that the um, FDA have actually no longer authorizing the monovalent vaccine in um, Pfizer or Moderna in the USA. And the um, authorization has been removed completely. Uh, that's not to say that's good in one way, because in another way, what they've done is tried to simplify the system by only authorizing the bivalent. So now it's only the bivalent vaccine that's available and authorized in the USA by the FDA. Well, what do we say? Well, you, you, you said the key bit that fear, fear and more fear is the is the joint is the agenda and of course seeing through that fear um is a, is a big part of uh, standing up against what's coming through now we're we're going to finish back on the subject of ukraine but this was an astonishing little report from the atlantic council about zelensky and here's the headline zelensky wants ukraine to be a big israel here's the roadmap so think about the uh uh, carnage on the battlefield to date, the huge number of men and women who are dying on the battlefields out there. But apparently where Zelensky is heading is to create a new big Israel. Um, now, in this Atlantic Council article, it uh, links through to Haaretz. And this is the Haaretz headline. Zelensky says post-war Ukraine will emulate Israel. It won't be liberal European soldiers in cinemas, supermarkets and people with weapons is Ukraine's future, Zelensky tells reporters, as the country's leaders begin to imagine what a precariously post-war Ukraine might look like. So this is very, very uh, dark stuff. I can't give you more from Haratz because it was uh, for, uh, goes behind a paywall. But if we... Um, jump back to what what uh, was was actually said i i see the future for ukraine as a big israel uh, that was um, Zelensky. apologies that that's not at the bottom of the slide uh, gone are hopes for an absolutely liberal state replaced by the likely reality of armed defense forces patrolling movie theaters and supermarkets i'm confident that our security will be the number one issue over the next 10 years. Um, so this is quite incredible statement. What exactly is being built in Ukraine? Is this simply out the head of Zelensky or is this out of the head of, of uh, US, UK and NATO sources? Um, so if we have a look at detail at the Atlantic Council, um, what, are, what are the big ideas for Zelensky to consider? Security first. Every Israeli government promises first and foremost that it will develop, deliver security and it knows it will be judged on this pledge. Ordinary citizens, not just politicians, pay close attention to security threats, both across borders and from internal sources. And many of the public are going to choose who they elect by this metric alone. So you're going to vote for security which I think many people would say is actually violence. The whole population plays a role. The Israeli model goes further than Zelensky's vision of security services deployed to civilian spaces. Most young Israeli adults serve in the military. Many are employed in security-related uh, professions following their service. A common purpose unites the citizenry, making them ready to endure 
to endure shared sacrifice. So this is um, giving us a picture of, of, well, something that's really quite incredible in my mind. Um, Zelensky is putting forward uh, that Ukraine is going to stay a militarized state is uh, what we're being shown here. Self-defense uh, is the only way. If there's any single principle that animates Israel's security doctrine, it's that is Israel will defend itself by itself and rely on no other country to fight its battles. The tragedies of Jewish history have embedded that lesson deep in the nation's soul. Ukraine's own trauma, forced to fight alone against a larger aggressor, reinforces a similar conclusion. Don't depend on the guarantees of others. Well, there's some irony in that statement, Mike, because, of course, Zelensky absolutely is dependent on the guarantees of others and has been burnt as a result. Uh, it says maintain active defence partnerships. Self-defence doesn't mean isolation. And it says that Ukraine uh, will probably not join NATO anytime soon, but it can de deepen security partnerships with alliance members and receive aid, weaponry, intelligence and trainer training to bolster its self-defense. So all good stuff to building this uh, uh, draconian state. Intelligence dominance from its early days, Israel has invested deeply in its intelligence capabilities to ensure that it has the means to detect and deter its enemies. Ukraine will need to upgrade its intelligence services to compete against Russian capabilities and to ensure it's prepared to prevent and repulse Russian attacks. Technology is key. Although it relies on US assistance, Israel also chooses homegrown technology solutions for many of its greatest challenges, multi-layer rocket missile defenses, counter drone systems, tunnel detection, uh, these are all great ideas, apparently, and Ukraine needs to get on board with them and uh, build an innovation ecosystem. Uh, the training many Israelis receive in high-tech innovation in the military contributes to a civilian innovation ecosystem, which in turn promotes the development of new security technologies. Ukraine has no lack of talented coders and engineers. Uh, many of whom are employed by Israeli startups. This gets better as you read through it, Mike. Encouraging the free flow of talent and ideas between the civilian and security innovation spaces will pay long-term uh, security and economic dividends. Uh, maintain the democratic institutions. <laughs> Israel continues to face the challenge of ending its conflict with the Palestinians in ways that ensures both its security and the Palestinian self-determination. But within Israel itself, a co constant focus on security hasn't prevented the uploading of core democratic institutions and practices. Zelensky seems aware of this tension, which will require constant maintenance, but also that democracy is a prerequisite. An authoritarian state is impossible in Ukraine. So he describes building an authoritarian state and then says that an authoritarian state in Ukraine is impossible. And uh, if we just finish off here, uh, the final comment by the Atlantic Council article is, like Israel in its early years, Ukraine appears to have fended off an acute existential threat, but the war is far from over. By adapting their country's mindset, 
to mirror aspects of Israel's approach to chronic security challenges, Ukrainian officials can tackle critical national security challenges with confidence and build a similarly resilient state. Uh, my comment on this has become more like Israel. Uh, that'll give us love and peace. And that's going to be assured in Ukraine and Eastern Europe as it is in the Middle East around Israel. Or am I being too cynical? Yes, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't really know where to start with that. There's so much could be unpacked in that little... Well, we'll take a bit of time in future news to do that. But I just wanted to end by bringing this one, because, of course, when Israel says it stands alone in the first instance, well, here's USA facts. How much military aid does the US give to Israel? The United States approved over 3.8 billion in foreign assistance to Israel in 2019, the most recent year of complete data. About 8.5 million of that aid went to the economy. The, the remainder to the, um, sorry, 8.5 million of that aid went towards the economy and the remainder went to the Israeli military. This is part of the 10-year 38 billion Memorandum of Understanding signed in 2016. It's the third agreement of its kind following two signed during the George W. Bush and Clinton administration. Um, so basically 38 billion pumped in by the US for war. And that's what they've achieved consistently around Israel in that time. And we are saying we're going to use this as the model for Ukraine. Yeah. It's, um, it is in your face what is being done at the moment. We'll leave, leave that there. segment there. Uh, okay, let's end with a couple of uh, memes, uh, Debbie. Yes, I just well, these are self-explanatory, really. Here we have the tree of liberty, and liberty is being starved and is getting very thirsty, I think. So I think it's all time we stood up and rose up and stood strong because things are definitely seem to be accelerating. And and then their current world population, um, 8 billion, I don't know how to actually say that, but it's over 8, eight billion. 8 billion. Uh, people, go on. <laughs> no, go on, Brian, I'll let you do it. Well, the point is that both both numbers are the same. So current world population exactly. and people born from women are the same number and people born from men is zero. Yeah, um, feel free to, to to fact check. I mean, you know, it's really it's really that simple. And I would also um, just like to, before you go to the final two memes, just very quietly, quite quickly, put out a bit of a plea for anybody who's like me, not very tech savvy. Um, the emergency alerts are going to be this Sunday, so St George's Day, and Rishi Sunak is very keen that nobody switches off their phone for these emergency alerts. However, I I personally have switched it off, but I needed help in the settings on my phone. So if you do have people that are vulnerable or elderly and maybe do have a phone and don't know that this alert's going out at three o'clock on Sunday, perhaps you would warn them or maybe ask them if they want the alert to be switched off. So that's this Sunday at three o'clock, St. George's Day, emergency alerts on your phone. Yeah, and that Debbie, just took we, me to my. Well, sorry, I'm just going to say we, we've we've mentioned uh, the emergency alerts a couple of times, including last Friday. We're going to mention it again this Friday, uh, and we do have a couple of graphics that show how to switch it off. Um, so uh, pay attention on Friday if you want to know. Oh, absolutely! That's, that's Thank you so much for that. 
Imagine that yeah, we're going to share the we're going to share the knowledge of how to switch off the government. Can you imagine <laughs> if this was done on a bigger scale? You simply press the button, and that's the whole of the UK government switched off. We could leave a bit of the civil service running, um, but we could get back to running our lives in a peaceful, organised way. I, th I think you must do more yeah. work on that, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just to add, actually, um, I, I can we, I just we're say those screenshots. Those screenshots I will be forwarding to everybody via Twitter and everyone. So get those screenshots that Mike's going to get ready for us. Yeah. Okay, so let's end with this. Uh, yes, well, I remember when a boy going into the girls' locker room was a crime, not a right. And uh, the second one, if I don't get vaccinated, I'm 100% protected against vaccine side effects and 99.8% protected against covid that's a good deal. Let yeah. that sink in. Okay. All right. We will end there. Thank you very much to our audience for joining us wherever you are in the world. And it is really encouraging to see that alongside our UK audience, we've definitely got a growing overseas audience. So we'll say today, welcome to Norway. Um, but it's really great to get the emails in from you, information and thanks. And also, we are very interested in hearing more about what's happening in countries overseas, if you can provide that information. Back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Bye-bye. <laughs>